will be in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and I'll read verses 1 through 11 this afternoon 1 Timothy chapter 4 now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy having their conscience seared with a hot iron forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine unto which thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wise fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who, that believe. These things command and teach. Shall we look to the Lord? Loving Father, we do thank you for your word and that it is the word of God to be received by faith and that it is the word of God to be believed and that we are to trust in the living God who has given us these things, these teachings in Christ that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, that we may recognize that the latter times will bring difficulties and that we will have to endure those things peradventure that you provide that we might still be here during that time of great apostasy. Father, we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage, we are reminded of a common theme that runs throughout the New Testament, either entitled End Times or Latter Times, and is generally considered to be during the Church Age and prior to the Second Coming of Christ. And so this apostasy of the end times, or the latter times, is spoken of in this selection here. Um, four areas uh, for our consideration. Some shall depart from the faith. Some shall believe seducing spirits. Some will believe doctrines of demons. Now I suppose, you know, as we consider these um, various aspects of end times, a lot of times, 
we realize perhaps every age, even the first century, may have seen some of these kinds of things taking place. And yet we find that um, uh, today it is no less relevant uh, that uh, these things should appear. And perhaps uh, as we recognize the appearance of these kinds of things, over the, the generations of people, especially those who are believing and trusting in Christ, we realize that um, we appear to be getting closer and closer to the return of Christ. And so they mark, in some sense, that very event that will take place um, at the end of the church age. Others will tell lies and hypocrisy saying, do not marry, and do not eat certain foods. As we find that um, even these things are promoted today, and uh, perhaps culturally, um, especially in the United States, it appears that this kind of, um, of teaching, if you will, or cultural diversity uh, is perhaps a little more prominent than we have seen for some time. Not to say that it wasn't uh, previously uh, present in other cultures, but we find that these things are also part of what is going on today. Thirdly, the good minister is to teach the word of Christ in faith and good doctrine. Now we find that Paul always comes back to the base of what he believes is so important for us to uphold. And that is the, from the last chapter, we notice the, the pillar and ground of truth is the church. And so that we also should, as ministers of, God, of the gospel, as servants of the gospel, or servants of Christ, we should make sure that we are well grounded upon the true foundation of Christ himself. That is, Christ being the foundation and all other aspects of doctrine being raised upon the foundation of Christ and Christ alone. And so the minister of the gospel is to continue faithfully in preaching the doctrines of Christ, though we find the culture may change. And uh, though we find that many different uh, various aberrations of, of uh, teachings may be present, Still, our teaching of the Word of God is to remain true to Christ and the doctrines of the church. And then lastly, godliness is profitable. Preach the gospel for God's will is that all men should be saved, especially, especially those who believe. And of course we have seen this before that uh, whether we happen to refer to a passage in Peter or, or elsewhere, we find that the sense of the doctrine of salvation is one which is to be given universally to everyone without exception, as Jesus Christ is the only true Savior revealed in the world, and he is especially, especially the only Savior revealed or known to those who believe. And so that is important for us to take particular note of. 
that the gospel is to continue to be preached throughout the generations and even in our own present generation or if we survive that other pastors and preachers should continue to preach the same doctrines of Christ as we ourselves have held and do hold as the true doctrines of the Church of Christ. Well, let's look at this passage a little more closely here as we move forward and talk about these latter times. I'd like to give a little bit of um, introduction uh, from Walwood's notes concerning this passage here. And he begins by making a few statements which I'll, I'll give to you. He says, the repository and guardian of the truth, the church must be aware of the strategies of the truth's enemies. It is crucial then for the church to understand what God has revealed about these enemies. And the first reference that I would turn to is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. Now this is a quite a lengthy passage. I may not read the whole thing, but I will read part of it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind... For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. For, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, meaning dead in sin, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Well, uh, Walwood makes a point that uh, the enemies of the gospel are those, of course, who are still living according to the lusts of the flesh and revel in those particular things. And we find that every culture, every society from generation to generation have had such people who continue to revel in the lusts of the flesh and the desires, of course, that goes along with them. And they become or enemies of the cross of Christ. And so we must realize that... Uh, these various uh, generations of which people have noted these particular aspects of the latter times uh, were, have been present before. Um, but yet, we find ourselves drawing nearer or closer to the time known as the end times or latter times. And did Paul mean specifically that it was only the first century in which he was talking about? No, he, of course he did not. Uh, but yet it wasn't too excluded either, because certainly uh, the enemies of the cross were present at that time as well. 
so we have to we realize that this period of time from the time of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, the preaching of the gospel being taken throughout the world and now continuing to be preached uh, some 2,000 years later or in the 21st century, we find that the preaching of the gospel is just as necessary and just as important where we find that these signs of the end times or latter times are very much as prevalent, if not more so. Uh, so we recognize this to be true. Also, Walford goes on to say this, that by the Spirit clearly says, Paul was not necessarily referring to any particular revelation, but to the repeated teaching of the Lord um, in the, well, in, for, for instance, in the Gospels, in Mark 13.22, it says, For false Christs and false prophets shall rise and show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. And what do we see here, of course, in chapter 4 and verse 1? He says, now speaking expressly, that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, doing what? Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And so Jesus talked about those seducing spirits as well. And of course the, the beguiling spirits may be those those spirits of men which teach falsely because they are enemies of the gospel of Christ. And we uh, know if it's not the spirit of God, then it has to be the spirit of man. And he goes on to say, and doctrines of demons or doctrines of spirits. Um, and so we find that uh, the doctrines of demons or, or evil spirits, if you will, are prevalent and have been and continue to be prevalent right up until our own generation, our own period of time, when there are many who follow doctrines of demons. And uh, you might account uh, whether it is some form of the occult, or whether it is some cultic practice, or whether it is some false uh, teaching uh, from some religious group, we find that doctrines of demons or seducing spirits are prevalent and uh, are obviously not of God, but are enemies of the gospel of Christ. And so we find that this is also true. In Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, it says, The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. 
For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overthrown with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word kept in store, reserved unto the fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, of course, there's a lot in that passage. But let us just summarize it and say this, that Peter is talking about those who scoffed against the God of creation. They scoffed against the second coming of Christ. They scoffed and said, all things have continued as they were from the beginning. And so what were they doing? But they were denying the word of God. They were denying the doctrines of God and of Christ. And so it is that they stood as enemies of the cross of Christ. And of course, if you read on, we know that it goes on to say, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us would that none should perish. But that God, of course, did desires that all men should come unto the knowledge of the truth. And so the biblical answer to this long wait is that God's timetable is not as man's and that man should not question God, but rather realize it is the goodness of God that allows man to come to repentance and that the long-suffering of God still continues for God desires that all men might come unto salvation. Not that all men will, but that all men should, if they would believe, especially to those who would believe, the gospel says. And so it is important for us to realize the error of those who make certain comments or accusations. Uh, Secondly, others will tell lies and hypocrisy saying, do not marry and do not eat certain foods. And so, again, this goes to verse 2 of chapter 4. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience sealed with hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know not the truth. So... Obviously, Paul wasn't talking about something that was foreign to his own period of time. There were as many people in that particular day also uh, who would hold these same um, falsehoods as we would know them. That we do know that marriage was given and instituted by God. And that woman was made for man that they might be one They might be together as one, that she might be the helpmate for Adam, and that they might serve together and do the will of God. And of course, because of the hardness of their hearts, we know that Moses allowed the uh, writing of divorcement. And we find that uh, since that day, of course, and time over the centuries, we know that there have been many, as, as enemies of the gospel of God, enemies of the gospel of God uh, who have stood against those 
those teachings which are truly of God, including marriage and including foods which uh, should be received with thanksgiving because they are sanctified by the word of God in prayer. But yet we find that there are many, there are many who even today, as over the many years, we find that there have been many who have uh, continued to promote um, being, living together without marriage. Yet God instituted marriage and ordained it. Uh, yet man continues to want to promote his own ideas. And it seems like in our own youthful culture today, we find there are, there are many young people, they don't, they don't bother to marry, they just, just live together um, in, in an unsanctified relationship and then in a relationship that is not ordained of God, but is rather condemned of God. And, uh, of course, uh, we do know that uh, a great many people practice that sort of thing. Whether they happen to be young or happen to be old, they'll do it as well. So, it, it, yes, it was common in Paul's day, um, and it, it is common in every generation, and we find that this is one of the areas that continues, that will continue right up until the end times or latter times before the Lord comes. And uh, as was pointed out this morning by Pastor Ball, he made mention of the days of Noah, and so shall it be um, in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, like unto the days of Noah, when they were marrying and giving in marriage, when they were rioting and reveling, and when they were not true to God, and they were disobedient against the will of God, did not receive the commandment of God, nor those things ordained by God, and so we find that nothing has changed, but rather it continues to grow and the culture continues to get worse and worse. And as I mentioned to you last week, the statistics of those who are putting out polls concerning what is going on in America, that the polls show now that those who practice faith or religion in Christ or in God uh, have dropped from 62% in the United States to a mere 39%. And so there is, a, there is a great turning away, a great apostasia, if we will, a turning away from the faith. And this, uh, of course, continues. Um, and so others will tell lies in hypocrisy, saying, do not marry and do not eat certain foods. And of course, uh, this particular element here has been picked up by many religious groups. Don't eat certain foods. And even the, the so-called New World Order of today is promoting the same kind of thing. Don't eat certain foods. Don't eat meat. Or they'll say, well, you should eat something else instead. Some kind of a plant-based food. And this has become the new mantra, of course, of, of many of the commercialized uh, grocery types of foods is that they'll say, oh, this plant-based. Uh, and, um, and, of course, uh, anything that isn't uh, meat, then I suppose would have to come from plant or else come from some chemical or other. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is the, the new thing, you know. It's supposed to, sell, supposed to sell to the public. It's plant-based, so you can buy this. This is good. This is the new world food. This is plant-based. 
And so the, the doctrines or the seducing spirits or the doctrines of demons don't necessarily, are not all restricted to religions, though we find they are a part of that as well. As we know that the Catholic Church restricted certain kinds of foods over many centuries, and we know that the, even the Catholic Church has restricted marriage unto their priests for a number of centuries, and uh, as far as I know, they still continue to do so. And, and so we find that this is not um, something new, but we should remember that it does fit within the sense of latter times and end times, and it does fit within the sense of those enemies of the cross who preach other than the doctrines of Christ, and so they stand against the truth of the Word of God. And that is the thing that we must, we must always recognize. Any kind of seducing spirit or doctrines of demons or those things which stand against the gospel and are untrue. We must stand against those things because they continue to be prevalent in every generation. Uh, no matter what generation you happen to be in and they will continue to be so. And so we find that that brings us to uh, number two. We'll read verses two through five again. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, and necessarily this is an, an, an illustrative thing here. We know what a hot iron will do to flesh. If you try to, to put a hot iron on something, that it is seared, made calloused, if you will. And, um, and so this sense uh, of the conscience, once the conscience has been seared by a repeated denial of the word of God, then we find it is, it is seared over, becomes less sensitive, and less uh, uh, given over to the truth of the word of God. And so having uh, th- this kind of hypocrisy uh, in their lives, and remember whether it is a religious group or whether it is a social group, if they are teaching something other than the Word of God, um, it, it is undermining and it is not being true to the gospel. He says, forbidding to, to, forbidding to marry, in verse 3, to a, a commanding to abstain from foods which God hath created, to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know the truth. And I think I would like to emphasize here the phrase, who believe. Who believe. See, um, all kinds of people may have certain kinds of beliefs, but if they're not in the gospel of Christ, then they do not receive the same doctrinal teaching from the word of God that you and I might believe. Right, But those who do believe the doctrines of Christ, those who do understand that, that all foods are meant to be received with thanksgiving, as he says, by them who believe and know the truth. By them who believe and know the truth. Now it may be, you know, some cultures eat different kinds of foods than you and I do, and we may have a preference to some food over, over other foods, Um, But on a general term, we understand that all food God has given is meant to be received with thanksgiving. And uh, uh, because we know the truth, because we know the truth of the word of God. Now, uh, it doesn't say you have to eat everything that comes your way, 
Um, obviously, if you, if you don't like um, liver or tripe <laughs> or perhaps uh, kidneys, uh, you know, oxtail, uh, you know, some of those things that we're perhaps the more common with that we kind of shy away from. Um, but, you know, if you're living in a different culture, those kinds of foods may be just fine for them. They may be uh, quite palatable and they may receive them with thanksgiving and, and, uh, and so forth. And that's good. That's good. Uh, but for those people who would come and tell you that you cannot eat certain kinds of foods because they said so and, and stand in opposition to the word of God, they are not teaching true to the word of God. Okay, and so verse 4, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it is received with thanksgiving. Well, we know that thanksgiving, or giving thanks to God, is one of the foundational principles of prayer. That we might not only supplicate God, we might not only petition God, in prayer, but that we might thank God in prayer. And so to thank God in prayer for what we have on our table is something that we should not shy away from. Even if we're all alone, by ourselves, in our living room, and nobody else is around, it is good to give thanks to God for what you have in front of you if you're eating. Or if you happen to be in a group somewhere and you are able to give thanks unto God in a group, it is okay to do that, and we find that it is a blessing to do so. Because all things can be sanctified by the word of God and prayer, and uh, we should do that. We should do that. So, for every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And so, here we have... Um, the need to do these things. Thirdly, the good minister is to teach the word of Christ in faith and good doctrine. Uh, so coming back to a very, a very important principle, um, he says this, verse 6, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, what he has just talked to us about, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the word of faith and of good doctrine unto which thou hast attained. And so the minister of the word of God uh, is to promote those things of God, of God, which are sanctioned by God, which are ordained by God, which are given by God. And so these things we are to do. And uh, we are to recognize that um, we are to stand against false or uh, biblical teaching, false biblical teaching, verse 1. Anyone who speaks other than the truth of the word of God, we must stand against it. Any seducing spirits, any doctrines of devils, we are to put away those from us who would teach some kind of hypocrisy such as forbidding to marry or not allowing people to eat certain kinds of foods or to deny that God has sanctified the very things that we pray about and God has said that we should pray about and because we pray about them God says 
you are allowed to eat them because I have created them and they are for you. And so all of these things which, which Paul has, uh, has spoken to, uh, he says we ought to take care and defend them. Defend them. And so we might add at this place that there is no small truth in the word of God. There's no small truth. If God has sanctified all truth to us, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth, in John chapter 17, if God has sanctified his word to us, his truth to us, there is no small truth. And so whether it is some cultural aspect that God has sanctified, such as eating foods, or obeying the sanctioned or or ordained means of companionship, we should, we should say, this is a big truth. This is just as important as anything else. God wants us to stand for it. He wants us to teach that we should, we should marry people. People come to you and, uh, and they want to be married. Marriage is an honorable institution and should be observed. Now there may be reasons why you would question or counsel somebody in marriage. But if they come seeking marriage, they're seeking a biblical ordained institution which you can sanction and say, yes, God has sanctioned marriage. The particulars of that may be different, but nonetheless, God has sanctioned it, and we should remember that it is a biblical truth. Also, we find here, as he goes on, in verse uh, 7, but refuse profane and old wise fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Now in this particular area, we recognize there are some things that the pastor is also to be true to, and that is not to accept extra-biblical things. Uh, we could call them spiritual superstitions or religious superstitions, fables, something that isn't, it isn't sanctioned by the word of God at all. It isn't supported by the scriptures. You know, whether there's some lost book of the Bible that somebody is trying to promote, or, or whether it is something, some other Gnostic teachings, some kind of a so-called spiritual teaching that isn't supported in the word of God. Whatever it might be, whatever fable it might be, whatever mythology it might be, we're to, we're to avoid them. They are profane. They are against the Word of God. They are not for the Word of God. And they are every bit as much a seducing spirit and a doctrine of a demon as anything else. And we find plenty of evidence in the Old Testament that many of the things that they did under idolatries were really the doctrines of demons. Sacrificing children to idols, sacrificing food unto an idol, you know, living, uh, asking, at, bowing down and praying to an idol that, that the idol might in some way bless them or bless their crops or give them fertility or any other thing. These, these are all seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, devils, demons, all of them. There isn't none of them are, are true. Because God doesn't sanction them. God doesn't say they're true, they're not true. 
And so refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself unto godliness. And of course you can think perhaps of many, many superstitions and cultures that would fit the same thing. That they ought to be refused. They are profane. They're not of God. They stand against God. But rather we are to exercise ourselves unto godliness. Godliness. And what does he say about godliness? He says, For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of life that now is, and of that which is to come. Well, um, perhaps the reason why that Paul put this in here about the exercise is that of the body, is because it has always been and continues to be one of the kind of mantras, if you will, of many religious people as well as secular people that um, that they have a healthy body and so they do all kinds of things to promote it including abstaining from certain foods or other kinds of things that they do to exercise themselves and every culture seems to have some kind of a bent toward this kind of thing. Of course we know the, the marathons were important in that day, the Olympics and the running of games and all of those kinds of things and the worship of the body was a big thing within the first century. I mean if you look at much of the art during the first century, the Greek and uh, art and the Roman art and all of these kinds of things and you've done any kind of study on these various kind of classic arts you realize that the human body was a central focus and figure of much of the art of the culture and uh, of course the museums are full of it uh, of this kind of thing and so what were they doing? They were worshipping the human body they were epitomizing the form and style and the, the health and the muscle and everything else of the human body that they, that they man is always overtaken by these kinds of things anything that draws man away from God it becomes in some sense either worshipped or an idol and so bodily exercise was one of those things in Paul's day and continues to be so but godliness and is profitable unto all things. Godliness, to live a godly life, a holy life, a life uh, dedicated to God. In the true sense of that dedication, uh, to, to believe in God and to trust in God, and so to order one's life according to the Word of God. And this isn't talking about some extremism. And of course we always have within the framework of, of godliness as true faith and true truth of the word of God. And so we always have to sift out anything that is not true faith and true truth. The true word of God. What the true word of God either tells us to do, how we are to live, or how we are to think, or how we are to conduct ourselves, we always have to look at the Word of God in a way to discover exactly what God wants us to do to live a godly life. It doesn't mean going into a monastery somewhere and closeting yourself away 
or using some kind of masochism and with a little whip and beating yourself daily, that isn't godliness. Or living on bread and water for, for 40 days, that isn't necessarily godliness. Of course, that may be called fasting. And some people may fast, and that may be a good thing. But we always have to test everything by the word of God in prayer. And so the true sense of godliness must be discovered as we live a godly life. Having the promise of life that now is, God says, if you live true to him, you'll have the promise of life that now is, the life that you're living right now, you'll have a good and godly life, You'll have a long life because you have given yourself over to a life of of not extremes. You haven't given your life over to a, a life of extremes. You've given yourself over to a life that seeks to live the truth of the Word of God. That now is, and that which is to come. And so what is our hope of living godliness is that we might live unto God, that we might realize that Christ is our true salvation, and our true hope of eternal life, eternal life, not mortal life. But we can take care of our mortal life while we're here if we live godly. And we can know that we have eternal life if we live godly. And trusting in the truth of the word of God. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, Paul not, of course speaking of himself, and probably his co-workers too. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, God is the Savior of all men, Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son whom God sent into the world to be that Savior of all men. Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Savior of all men, but, in, but importantly to those who believe. And so we realize of the, the importance of living to Christ in the latter times or end times, whatever those times may bring, whatever is currently affecting us. I'd like to close by reading a little bit of an article that I think applies to what we're saying because it is talking about end time things. This one is entitled Religion in the Midst of Climate Politics. And if you don't think that applies, then you haven't been listening to what's going on in religion, and you haven't been listening to what goes on in politics or in climate. Leaders of various religions and religious organizations gathered to repent of their alleged climate sins and usher in what they described as a new universal Ten Commandments. Now we've been talking about seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Think about it. A new Ten Commandments? And climate sins? Okay. 
In November 2022, representatives of major Christian and Islamic denominations joined forces with all manner of pagans and heathens to unveil what they hope will be the new and improved moral code of the future. I know you're shaking your head on this one. And it's a good idea to shake your head a couple of times. Supporting the United Nations COP27 Climate Change Summit in Egypt, faith leaders gathered in Sham, El Shaikh, and other cities to proclaim climate penance with a new Ten Commandments. After worldwide criticism, the new Ten Commandments were reframed as Ten Principles of Climate Repentance. Critics still ridiculed the movement, joking that these religious leaders were hitching their wagons to what many scientists and experts have referred to as the discredited climate, quote, religion, or even, quote, cult. But the events and the move toward a united global religious movement organized around, quote, Mother Earth, are no laughing matter. The bizarre ceremonies organized by the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development, abbreviated ICSD, were originally scheduled to take place at Mount Sinai on Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, near the Red Sea resort town of Sham El Shaikh, as the UN Climate Summit was taking place nearby. While some of the religious antics happened on the Sinai Peninsula, many of the festivities were held in London and Jerusalem after the security concerns reportedly led Egyptian authorities to withhold permission for the original plan. A key organizer of the global call for climate repentance, ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, dubbed the Green Patriarch, issued a public statement denouncing the abuse of nature and the exploitation of its resources as a sin against God and the gift of creation. In a press release about the effort, organizers said they hoped it will inspire the people to act modestly and carry out actions for climate justice. The new Ten Commandments were listed as, and here they are, we are stewards of this world, number one. Secondly, creation manifests divinity. Now that one, of course, goes to nature being God. Everything in life is interconnected. Fourthly, do no harm. Fifthly, look after tomorrow. Sixthly, rise above ego for our world. Seven, change our inner climate. Eight, repent and return. Nine, every action matters. And ten, use mind, open heart. And of course all of these are quite vague in a very real sense of the word and can be interpreted in many different ways. And so not to offend anyone as the, uh, of course, the original Ten Commandments offend everybody. And so these offend no one. 
and you can interpret them any way you want to. Another one of the ringleaders of the Events Interface Center for Sustainable Development, boss Rabbi Yoktan Niri, rejected the idea that religion and ecology are separate and distinct from each other. Many people fear that humans have irrevocably destroyed the ecology of Eden on Earth. Rabbi Nirum was quoted as saying in media reports, totally misrepresenting the Hebrew scriptures found in Genesis, but God created the world out of love for life on earth. Okay, well, there is more, but I, I will not read any more of that one. I think you probably got the gist of it already. And of course, it fits very well what we're saying. Doctrines, uh, seducing spirits, doctrines of, of demons. Doctrines of demons affect the unsaved as much as they do the saved. They can confuse the saved. And of course, to, the world will just are seduced by them. They're beguiled by them. They're taken in by them. And uh, it's very, it's kind of very... Um, to use a modern phrase, oh, it's so cool, you know, to believe the, the, um, the most contemporary thing there is to believe about life and about the earth and Mother Earth. And, of course, it makes, makes Mother Earth the religion of God. Uh, this last article, which I'll take a few minutes to read, also talks about some very important issues. No privacy... No property, the techno progressive great reset. The World Economic Forum, WEF, was founded five decades ago. It has gained more and more prominence over the decades and has become one of the leading platforms of futuristic thinking and planning. As a meeting place of the global elite, the WEF brings together the leaders in business and politics along with a few selected intellectuals. The main thrust of the forum is global control. Free markets and individual choice do not stand as the top values, but state interventionism and collectivism, individual liberty and private property are to disappear from this planet by 2030. According to the projections and scenarios coming from the World Economic Forum, that's the WEF. Now that's only eight years away, people. Interesting. Eight predictions. Individual liberty is at risk. What may lie ahead was projected in November 2016 when the WEF published eight predictions for the world in 2030. According to the WEF scenario, the world will become quite a different place from now because how people work and live will undergo a profound change. The scenario for the world in 2030 is more than just a forecast. It is a plan whose implementation has accelerated drastically since the announcement of a pandemic and the consequences lockdown. According to the projections of the WEF, quote, Global Future Councils, unquote, private property and privacy will be abolished during the next decade. The coming exproportionate 
would go further than even the communist demand to abolish the property of production goods, but leave space for private possessions. The WEF projection says that consumer goods, too, will be no longer private property. If the WEF projection should come true, people would have to rent or borrow their necessities from the state or state-approved cooperations with a focus on major sectors, i.e. transportation, which would ultimately be the sole proprietor of all goods. The supply of goods would be rationed in line with a social credit point system Shopping in the traditional sense would disappear along with the private purchases of goods. Every personal move would be tracked electronically and all production would be subject to the requirements of clean energy and a sustainable environment. You notice how this goes along with the idea of one world religion and religion being creation of God and climate. In order to attain sustainable agriculture, the food supply will be mainly vegetarian, again, to abstain from certain foods, now by the state. Um, in the new totalitarian service economy, the government will provide basic accommodations, food and transportation, while the rest must be lent from the state. The use of natural resources will be brought down to its minimum, in cooperation with the few keys countries, a global agency would set the price of CO2 emissions to an extremely high level to desensitize its use. In a promotional video, the World Economic Forum summarizes the eight predictions in the following statement. Now, these are the eight predictions. One, people will own nothing. Goods are either free of charge or must be lent from the state. Number two, the United States will no longer be the leading superpower, but a handful of countries will dominate. Three, organs will be transplanted, will be not transplanted, but printed. In other words, they're going to be made in a factory somewhere, in some kind of lab thing. Meat consumption will be minimized. Massive displacement of people will take place with billions of refugees. To limit the emission of carbon dioxide, a global price will be set at an exorbitant level. Number seven, people can prepare to go to Mars, or hell, excuse me, that's my addition, People can prepare to go to Mars and start a journey to find an alien life. And number eight, Western values will be tested to the breaking point. And of course what they mean by Western values is anything that happens to be Judeo-Christian. Uh, seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, uh, demons. I think there's plenty of it to go around whether it's coming from churches or whether it's coming from the government. There's plenty of it to go around. Beware of what's coming next. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you for your word to us. 
Thank you, Father, that we, could, we should be aware of what's going on around us. As we know, even in Paul's day, he had to be aware of what was happening in the, in the culture in which he was living, that he might give a warning to those within the church, especially to those that believe and know the truth. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.